Hey, everybody. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm co-founder of EventRight. We're going to do a um, full hour of question and answer on licensing. Uh, normally, we got about 100 people or so on these, around 80 to 100 people typically. I don't see that many people on here yet, but a lot of folks kind of join a little bit on the later side. See a few more people coming in. Um, so because it is a full open Q&A, um, I'm going to be answering your questions that you type into the questions box. So please type your questions into the chat, and we'll make sure to, to answer some of those. If you don't have enough questions, I don't know if we properly promoted this one. So if we don't have enough questions, we'll, uh, we will be jumping off early. But if we got enough questions, we should be good. Um, Brad, thanks for uh, for being appreciative of what we're doing here. But what I need is questions, man. Type some questions in. Um, so it should be a lot of fun. Uh, okay, so game on. And type your first name because um, a lot of you have handles. So just type Bob or Sally or whatever so I can address you by your first name rather than your handle. So uh, somebody's handle is game on. I would like to hear about exclusive versus non-exclusive. So that's a really important question, and I'm going to address the most important fact of that when you're licensing. A lot of people are the under the misperception that, oh, if I license it to five companies, I'll make more money than if I license it to one company, and that's just not the case. So now it could be, could be, and you can license to five companies sometimes, but if you license this one really, really big company and they're going to sell half a million units a year 200,000 units a year, 100,000, whatever it is, depends on what the nature of the product is, depending on how much it sells. Um, that's really good, and you shouldn't be greedy thinking, like, I'm going to license it around the world. I'm licensed it to all top five companies. Well, all top five companies usually don't want it because if you license to their four competitors, what competitive advantage do they have? It's very rare that you can license your same product to the other four competitors of this one company. So here's the rule that here's the way I like to look at it and a good way of you guys should look at it and write this down. As long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, you can license it to multiple companies. You can license it in different geographies. You can license a different version of it. You can license it to a different distribution channel. Like let's say a version of it sells at convenience stores or gas stations, but then there's another product that sells um, in toy stores or big box stores, but they don't, really compete with each other, right? You can sell a high-end version, a low-end version, where you license it to a company that's doing low-end stuff, and they're like, oh, yeah, if you want to sell a $100 version of this $10 product, we don't care. We're good with that in a different place. But if they're both selling on the same shelf at Walmart right next to each other, that doesn't make any sense. So... If a company doesn't want an exclusive, I'm usually pretty concerned. I'm concerned that they're going to make a commitment to it. I'm concerned that why don't they want that? So, I mean, I would say nine and a half times out of ten, if they don't want an exclusive, there's, it's, it's concerning. Our students have done deals where there are non-exclusives. Sometimes the company's really small and you want to do a, a non-exclusive and they have limited distribution. It's not going to mess up your chances to do a deal with a bigger company. But don't think that, oh, oh, I've got to license this around the world to 20 companies, because usually that doesn't make sense. Um, but it can, so it really, it, it depends quite a bit. Um, uh, Nicole, hi, if you have a product concept that will require a chemical formulation uh, before approach, require a chemical formulation, do you need to actually develop a formulation before approaching companies for licensing? Well, it depends. Is it like a cosmetic? Is it a, dr a drink? Um, is it, what is it? You know, and so it's the same thing with the physical product. Like maybe you can't create a beautiful production ready prototype for the physical product, but it's obvious how it's going to be made. So you're creating a more crude um, prototype of the product. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we see. We're going to put a hinge over it and do this and that. So you didn't need to make this beautiful production prototype. So, But if it's a chemical formulation and you have no idea how that's going to be done and they're 
they have no idea, well, then maybe you need to do it, you know. But if you're like, oh, well, you know, I couldn't do it, but I know with if you use this and this and this that it could be done. Or you're just going to change. See this product over here? You just got to change this one thing that I've found that you can add to it, and it will work, you know. You also have to keep in mind that you making something work on a level where you're making 10 of them and then making 100,000 a year is a pretty big difference. So being able to manufacture it on a mass scale is different than you making one prototype. And, and quite often they understand how it's going to be made on a mass scale. But maybe the component, Nicole, that you add to the chemical composition isn't going to work on a mass scale or isn't going to be safe or what have you. So you wrote, I'm thinking the answer is yes, but try to determine how far to take the prototyping process with this type of product. Well, I don't know if you could, don't disclose anything confidential, Nicole, but if you could tell me what type of product is, don't disclose anything confidential, like if it's a cosmetic or if it's a cleaning product or, or something like that, that would be great. I'll jump back to you. Oh, okay. She wrote, it's in the apparel industry. Hmm. It must be a cleaning product for apparel because normally apparel doesn't require a chemical formulation. Maybe it's a cleaning product. This is a cleaning product. Yeah, you kind of got to figure that out. They're like, well, what chemicals are we going to use? You've accomplished this. Um, product applied to apparel. Yeah, so it's a cleaning product. Yeah, you kind of you do, and it kind of sucks because it, it might not be that simple. Um, but then the question is, what invention do you really have? You're like, you must have made it work on some level. So the question is, on the level that you made it work, would that be enough to intrigue them and get their interest? And so what you could do is get their interest, and they're like, oh, well, but what are we going to use? And now at least you know you've got somebody on the hook. Maybe they're not interested in a cleaning product for silk. Let's say it's for silk, specifically for silk dresses, and nobody's biting, and you're realizing there's not a market for that or nobody's interested. So you could still fish off the pier, sell the benefits of a cleaning product. You could always do that and see what the interest level is before you go out and spend a ton of money to having somebody formulate the chemical composition of it, you know? And so that could be a, a safer way to go. Um, uh, Carrie, how can I use the line drawings I made to use when I file for my PPA? Do they have to be exact dimensions or concept? Um, okay, so Carrie's asking, can I use the line drawings I made to use when I file my PPA, do that to be exact? So for what is the question? Line drawings in a cell sheet or marking piece look amateurish. So you should never in your marking piece or you show companies be line drawings for your PPA. That's ridiculous. And I see inventors do that all the time. Don't do that. Now, maybe you use those line drawings and you colorize them. They look beautiful. Usually not. Um, so let's see if you expanded on that carry. Can you expand on that, carry on what you want to use the line drawings for? Is it for the marketing piece? What is it for? My guess is it is, and don't use line drawings for marketing piece. You want to do a marketing piece that shows them how they're going to market it. And have you ever seen a marketing piece, an advertisement, a video, anything, where they're using line drawings? Never. You know, so doesn't. So the answer is more than likely, carry. Uh, no, do not use your line drawings from the PPA, um, unless there was some way of taking that and colorizing them and making them beautiful. Uh, oh, Carrie says, can I use them for the PPA? Huh. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So what she's more asking about is for the PPA. Can I use line drawings I made? Yes. Uh, a, a provisional patent application has no, no formal requirements. You could scribble with crayon. And again, everything that I'm telling you tonight is not legal advice. Always seek the services of an attorney before you act on anything. Um, that's my little disclaimer. Uh, but line drawings in a PPA um, have no formal requirements. You could take a picture and I could say, okay, these are some unique reading glasses. Take a picture of it like this and Put that in my PPA. I could do line drawings. I could do color drawings. You could do whatever the hell you want. But one thing that we always talk about in Eventbrite is doing line drawings that kind of look like patent drawings. It makes it look professional. So when a marketing person gets it, and it's never the first thing you're sending, at some point you send them the PPA, 
and they don't know what most of them don't know what a the difference so it looks like nice it looks professional it looks kind of like a patent but with a provisional patent you don't need to hire somebody or do them yourself that they don't need to comply with any regulations whatsoever like a non-provisional like a regular patent so if you just kind of make them look like patent drawings somewhat as line drawings perfectly fine our students do that all the time absolutely but don't use them in a marketing piece. So it looks like I expanded into a question you didn't even have. Don't put line drawings or patent drawings and don't send them as your marketing. Oh, here's my drawings of my invention. Never, ever. Um, uh, uh, hey, Andrew, do companies prefer to license unique ideas or certain updates to their current product line uh, from a rule? It, it depends. Depends on the product. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. So no, I think they could do products that are different, but in the space that they're in, I think they could do products that are ex nice extensions to their product line. I think they could do either. Um, but saying your product sucks, this is so much better, isn't the great approach. So you've got a product that is going to kill their product. That, that can be a little tough sometimes, but it is what it is. I mean, but you don't tell them their product sucks. So are they going to think, will it replace this product or will it be an addition or another product? Can your product still sit right next to their other product or are they going to have to kill this other product to do your product? You know, um, and it is what it is. So you present it and they're either okay with that or they're not. Um, but you should, you should also approach companies that are making that product because if it's company number one is making this product and yours is kind of an improvement to it, going to kind of kill it. Well, company number two, three, and four, they see this product from company number one doing well, and they're like, oh, we didn't really want to get into doing that, but, you know, specifically because they're doing it well, but, oh, this is even better. So company two, three, or four that's not selling this product might be more interested in that company because now they got to kill that product. Or they might be willing to kill it and put your product on the shelf. It, you don't overthink it. Just show it and see what they think. People overthink this stuff. You can never know what they're thinking. Um, Uh, Jeff says Fiverr's policy is for artists not to give out their real names. Yeah, Fiverr is really weird. I mean, they can't give out their emails and their whole system, like make sure the name and the email isn't given because they don't want you to get around their system and pay the artist directly. So that is, there is some truth to that. Um, do you have any recommendations on getting drawings without an NDA? Uh, I think there are a certain terms of service um, and you know, you gotta be careful with Fiverr because, um, and I, it used to be, I don't know if it's updated cause I haven't used Fiverr and eons. Um, but if you didn't, if you didn't, it used to be again, so it used to be, so I don't have current information on this guys. Um, that if you didn't check a certain box that you were actually agreeing that the artist could use whatever they created for you as part of their public portfolio on Fiverr, which is not what you want as an inventor. So again, I don't know if that's true right now. Um, and then getting an NDA is even further. Um, but as long as they're not promoting it publicly, um, is some uh, somebody on Fiverr that is in India or somewhere in another country, are they going to know what to do with your invention if they thought it was great? Probably not. But that is a concern that people have. And one major concern when our students were going to Fiverr back in the day before we started our own design studio and did graphic design for our students and sell sheets and virtual prototypes is that it, if you didn't check this box that they could publicly show your product as part of their portfolio and you do not want that. You do not want public disclosure. So um, it's something you need to be careful about, Jeff. Um, Ellen says, I'm trying to make my product find a material that is waterproof, printable, removable, and non-toxic to adhere on glass, what is what is this so difficult? Why is this so difficult? And how do I get answers? Um, well, I, I think you should look for um, products that, that that do that, you know. And it could be if you can see that it's doing that in another product, not your product. You're like, oh, I know it exists, you know. And then you could dig down deeper. So a lot of times, what you're doing is, you know, a, a simple way of doing your manufacturing research. Like, oh well. See that product over there? It's not mine. 
but it has that certain functionality and selling for 1995 and mine needs that component too. So I know I can do mine for 1995 because it just needs that piece. It's only a piece of it. So quite often you can do that materials research by not just seeing that some manufacturer has that material and costing it, but seeing it's actually in the marketplace from a practical standpoint as somebody mass manufacturing it. Um, but you want a material that is waterproof, printable, removable, and non-toxic to adhere to glass. You know, I mean, you you can, you know, sometimes you gotta you gotta kind of stretch it a little bit. So what you can do is you say, I'm a product developer. And I have this large company that I'm working for, and I am looking for you going to materials providers. I am looking for a material that can do this. Do you have it? But if you come and you say, I'm Joe Inventor, and do you have this? They're not really going to, a materials manufacturer isn't going to jump through hoops to give you what you need. Um, in a former life, uh, 20, 28 years ago, wow. Um, I used to sell computerized machining centers to machinists. And they would get inventors coming in going, I want you to make my gadget. And, and uh, the, the uh, machine shop owner say, you know, I don't like it, those guys. I, I just give them ridiculous quotes. So they go away because I know they're not going to ask me to make even 100 or 200 or 1,000 or 10,000. They wanted the big orders from the big companies. And so that's just a little lesson in that sometimes you got to come at it from a different angle. And it might benefit them. You guys say, look, I'm, I'm working with this large manufacturer and I'm a product developer and I need this material that does this. And so then they might work a little harder for, I, I no, I'm sorry, I can't disclose who it is, you know, sort of thing. So um, when you come in and you say, I'm an inventor to a materials manufacturer, you basically don't want to say that, <laughs> your company. Um, so, uh, but yeah, you know, with regards to getting that material, um, you can go on websites, you can go on Alibaba, Thomas Register, all these other sites, and you can research these materials and you can request bids. I need a material that does this or that, or you can look through um, companies that do these materials. There's also trade shows, not right now, of course, um, that, that have materials and different things. So it's a fair amount of research. And, you know, for people that are experienced in that, Ellen, you know, it's not that hard, but for you it is because it's the first time you've done it, so it's just a skill that you need to build up. And, um, but don't tell them you're an inventor, okay? Not for materials guys or people trying to sell you these materials. Um, but you can get them to do the work. If you say, hey, I'm a product developer, I'm working with this uh, manufacturer that needs a material that does this, and I'm researching it, can you find that for me? And be very articulate in the way you explain to them what you need. Um, so let's see. Uh, Game On says, I've made a few working prototypes of my idea. Wouldn't it be a good idea to send the company in which I'm interested? Um, you wanna, it's not the first thing you want to do when you get interest from a company. You want to get on the phone and talk to them about the product so they realize you're a person. You're not just a, a name and an email. Um, and you absolutely don't want to send a product up front ever. Not because, you know, first off, you might only have one. Sometimes you can create 10 easily. Sometimes, wow, I did do a lot of work to create this prototype. And they'll lose it, they'll break it, whatever. And you get another company interested, and they don't have that prototype to send them. So, but that's not even the real problem. It does not move the deal forward. They'll, they'll break it. They won't use it right. Quite often, a video showing you using the prototype, if you have a beautiful working prototype um, or not, um, it's not so beautiful, not working great. But one time out of 10, you shoot the video, it works. That's a better form of prototype to send than actually sending them a real prototype. Um, another tip that I only recently started giving some of our students is you can attach a laminated tag to it that has graphics and it, it's like a how-to manual on how to use it. And you like put a, I'm exaggerating to make a point here, put a metal chain to it. So it's literally this laminated instruction tag on how to use this prototype cannot get broken and cannot be removed from the product itself because they will use it wrong almost every time and go, oh, this thing doesn't work, you know? And so that's why a, a, a video is better because it will work right every time. But at some point you might need to send it to them, but basically assume they're gonna use it wrong and not use it correctly. And that's why they need to see the video first or the sell sheet or whatever and they get it, you know? 
So um, yeah, you can set a prototype at the right time, but it's not upfront later. Um, uh, to the non-targeting, okay. I'll just read it and we'll figure it out together. Zam says, with pull-through marketing, how do you phrase to the non-target licensing company that you are presenting the idea to them to build interest? Um, so what, what Zam's saying, he must have been reading our stuff, is like when you license, you don't show to a buyer at Target. So let's say you have a kitchen gadget. You don't license it to the buyer at Target. You license it to a kitchen manufacturer, let's say OXO, of kitchen gadgets that has products in target. Okay. So what Zan is saying is what you were, we, we at InventRight refer to as pull through marketing. You could present to the buyer at target for the kitchen category and to see if there's interest. And quite often they'll be a little upset because they'll be like, Oh, this is really interesting. What's your price sheet? What's your packaging? When can you deliver? And you're like, Oh no, I'm looking to license this to one of your vendors, which is how you would say it when they come back. So they might get a little pissy with you um, because they're like, why are you wasting my time? But you can say, so then you say, no, I'm looking to license it to one of your vendors. If I did that, would you be interested? Well, yeah, I would. I'm kind of upset. You don't want, you don't want to sell me right now. So that's how you deal with it, Zam. So that's what you can, you can do that. It's not typically the first thing that our students do. It's kind of a, I hate the word la use last resort, but I would rather have your potential licensee show it to the buyer at Target because they can present it in a better way. Um, but if that's not working, you can try to present it to buyers, get some interest, and then you can present it to those companies and say, well, you know, the buyer, won't, the buyer at Target loves it. You know, oh, that might intrigue them. Or you can even go back to people who said no and say that then. So we don't typically use that as a first um, approach at all. Uh, but you can use it as a backup approach. If you're like, I know this makes sense. And you can start approaching buyers. Uh, let's see. Hender says, uh, can I pay for just an hour with one of your coaches instead of the entire um, plan or year? So what we've found is that everybody thinks, oh, I just got one question. I just got one question. It's never the case. And so the answer is yes and no. So we do have something called Kickstart where you can do, because an hour is not enough, you can do a 90-minute Kickstart session. We only do it once. And then if you want to upgrade to our bootcamp program, you can take that. It's pretty affordable. It's $249 and apply it to our six-month bootcamp program. So you'll be basically getting that for free. But we only do it once. We do not do hourly. To me, the word consultant, we never call us a consultant. We're your coach, mentor, teacher. The consultant means stringing you along for more billable hours and make you depend on us and not teach you anything. That's what consultant means. Coach, mentor, teachers empower you so you can continue to do this for the rest of your life. And you can't do that with one one-hour call. But we do do it once. It's called Kickstart. It's on our website. We'll do it once for 90 minutes and we'll credit towards boot camp. It's not a, a uh, uh, tease by any means. Our head coach, Terry O'Mara, does them. He's absolutely amazing. We get raving reviews. Um, I would say about half the people that do them, it's not about, I, I looked at it the other day, half the people that do them will upgrade to bootcamp. The other half don't, but they're like, wow, that was great. So helpful. So yeah, we do do that for a 90 minute kickstart session. Um, but be ready, come prepared. So you get a lot if you do that. Uh, can you license, this is Arthur Young, can you license your product to a nonprofit organization? If so, how would you collect royalties from a product that was sold for charitable purposes? Oh, okay, interesting. Well, a charity, so it's a product that would be sold for charitable purposes. You have to take the whole point of licensing is you tap into the distribution channel that's already there, okay? So if a company's selling kitchen gadgets, it, you know, Williams Sonoma and Bed Bath and Beyond and Target Walmart. That's what they're going to do. They're going to sell your kitchen gadget in the channels that they're already in, and that's the point of it. You know, with licensing, you don't like try to approach people and go, "Well, you should do this." Like I had a student the other day that said, "Oh, well, I want to approach these companies. I want to tell them they should sell it on their website, monogrammed with people's initials, and sell them one by one." 
And I'm like, they're not going to do that if that's not what they're doing now. So they're going to do whatever they do now. So Arthur says he thinks that this would be sold, this would be that was sold for a charitable purpose. So you have to basically look at what are people doing to sell things for charitable purposes? What's the distribution channel? Is now people, there's companies that will say we do donate 10% of our profits to this charity or that charity. Now, going to a company and saying, well, you, I, I want to license this product to you, and I want you to give 10% to a breast cancer uh, research foundation. Well, if you see them already doing that, perfect. Like if they're already donating to breast cancer, that's easy breezy, right? They're like, yes. But if you tell them they're supposed to be doing this and they've never done it with a single one of their products, you're kind of telling them you need to sell in a way that you don't sell now. Right. Or you need to distribute in a whole different channel. You don't distribute now. So the question is, Arthur, if you want to uh, give it away, you know, without knowing more details, it's hard to answer your question. But um, you want to tap into what's already there. So if it's a charitable organization and they don't have any sales of any products, if they have a website where they sell products. Great. But if they're selling other people's products and donating to charity or what have you, maybe you're licensing to this company that has this product that works with 10 charitable organizations. There's so many angles you could go at it from without, but don't make up the whole sales technique and the whole distribution channel and then try to force people to use it. Kind of tap into what's already there. Existing distribution, existing sales mechanisms. That's the best way I can put it. Without knowing your product, I can't get more specific than that, but I think that's going to benefit everybody. Um, uh, Susie says, do you have to do I have to use for a product or does the licensor do that? How, so let's answer that. So, you know, yes, you have to you have to kind of like make an assumption. Is it going to be plastic or is it going to be copper or is it going to be metal or, you know, but you not the specific. You know, like you're not giving them Well, you're going to use ABS plastic or this plastic. I mean, you kind of like if you look at similar products and you see it's ABS plastic, which is a tougher type of plastic, then you just suggest that's what it is. So you you do need to know, is it going to be metal or plastic? But you don't need to know the specific, like, composition of plastic. You don't need to know that. You need to know it's, be, it's tough plastic. Or, oh, it could be a cheap plastic. And you, you can figure that out by looking at similar products and making assumptions on what it needs to be. And you do not need to be a manufacturing expert to do that. So that's very empowering. In InventRight, we're all about saying empowering things that are true and that is very true and it's very empowering as well so you can't be completely lazy and go i don't know you can make it out of plastic or cloth or you need to give it some thought but you don't need to be a manufacturing expert to give it enough thought you do not but you can't just say oh, it could be out of any of these things you have to put your best foot forward on what you think it should be made of second part of that question is how do you find a manufacturer to price point for the product how do, you find a man, how do you find a manufacturer to find price points for the product? They're going to get some quotes. And a lot of times you need to have a feel by looking at similar products. Well, if they can make that for 1995, mine just as a hinge over here. It's more or less the same. And you can actually suggest that to them. But they're going to go get some quotes. You know, Because you're never going to get, in most cases, quotes that are as low as theirs. So if you do get some quotes, be very careful about, well, here's my quotes. And you're like, well, it's going to cost 20 bucks to make. And they're getting quotes and they're getting quotes for $5 because as like I said earlier, some manufacturers going, well, I can tell this woman's not going to order much. So we'll give her some ridiculous quote or a quote for really low volume. So you got to be careful about getting quotes. Pretty much you want to put that on them, but you can make assumptions based on their products and give them that information. So you literally say, well, there's this product in the market, same amount of material is a different functionality is selling for 20 bucks. So, and I don't think there's much difference. So I think you guys can sell. That's not something you present initially, but when they start asking questions, it might be something you present. But for the most part, you want to put it on them to get some quotes. Um, these are great, great questions. Great questions, Susie. Uh, Hera, hey, Andrew, thanks for answering my email. I guess so many emails. Sorry, I don't remember which one that is. I'll go back and look later. Um, uh, Harry says, what what should I do if a company said they were going to get back to me right away and they have not emailed me in a couple days or weeks? It's completely normal. 
It's common. They're busy. You're not their top priority. They got a ton of stuff going on. It's normal. So, you know, if it's a couple days, God, I wouldn't follow up. Give them some time. Give them a week or two. Um, but if it's been two weeks, drop them an email. Whenever you drop them an email, um, include everything from before. Include the prior email, like reply, and then include everything, every attachment, everything that's in there so they can see the chain. Oh, yeah, I got to get back to this guy. Don't be stupid and send him an email and say, hey, did you get my email? And make them search through their email for your other email. Don't, don't do that. Um, just make it really easy. Be very succinct and to the point. Be very friendly. I know you're busy. Just want to follow up with you on this, whatever it is. Um, uh, I don't know. I can't pronounce the name. D-R-C-G-A-1. Um, again, guys, type your first name, and I like to address you by first name. Do you have a good prescription for, for, for link or resource on copyright and trademarks? Thank you. Um, so copyrights and trademarks are free and not. So on copyrights, um, anytime you give a speech, it's automatically copyrighted. Anytime you do artwork and you put the little C, um, it's automatically a little C with a circle around it. It's automatically copyrighted. So it's free. Now, you can also file with the Library of Congress. That's where you file a copyright. You can file a whole portfolio of stuff. And it costs a few bucks. I, I don't, don't quote me what it is now. I'm not asking our students to do that all the time. I was 100. I don't, I don't even remember. Go to the Library of Congress. You can figure it out. Um, but copy, you can do the free version of copyright, which is put a little C, the circle around it, putting people on notice. It's my copyright. And what I created was a song, a speech, um, uh, um, uh, gra uh, graphics, any of that stuff. The whole sell sheet you created, copyrighted. Um, the words that are on the sell sheet, copyrighted. You know, it's free. But you can also file at the Library of Congress. Rarely do our students do that. Sometimes it makes sense. Most of the time they just put a C around, around it, you know, circle around it. Um, for a trademark, same thing. So there's two types of trademarks. There's a registered trademark and a common law trademark. Common law trademark is the TM with, it's right there in the back. You see the event right here is TM. We actually have a registered trademark. So Eventbrite, we've been around 20 going on 21 years, and it was only, God, I think it was only a couple years ago that we filed for a registered trademark. Now, if anybody used Eventbrite in relation to invention coaching or invention, um, we would kick their butt because we've been around for 20 years. We're very well known in the space after 20 years. We didn't even have it registered until recently. So, but you have to use your trademark in commerce, and we have across state lines and internationally for 20 years. Um, so uh, 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 this is complicated, guys, but not. And so I'm just covering basics, okay? So consult a copyright or trademark attorney if, if, before you act on anything. But um, you have to use your common law trademarks, the TM with the circle around it or not. Looks like we didn't put a circle around it. I'm looking behind me. Um, you know, and you have to actually use it in commerce. But even if you haven't used it in commerce to sell things, you're kind of, it's still putting people on notice. It's putting people on notice that this is my mark, you know. But if you don't use it in commerce, we are, then it doesn't hold much weight. So, but for a period of time, you're kind of putting people on notice. And I won't go into all the details on that because that gets pretty detailed. But it's free. So our students, for the most part, when they have a catchy name or whatever, they put TM, put a circle around it. And it's completely free, and it's putting people on notice that this is your mark. Now, you can also pay to register trademarks that are with a circle around it, and that gets fairly expensive. So what I, again, this is not legal advice. Seek the service of an attorney if you need legal advice. This is just what, what, what our students do quite often is if every time you come up with a clever name, and most of the time they don't even use your name, you pay for a registered trademark, it's probably not a good use of your money. Could it bite you in the butt? Yes, good. So I'm not telling you not to file a registered trademark, but you know, at Eventbrite, we're all about what is common. In 20 years, have we ever had a student do, do the TM and then some company stole the name of the product, maybe not even the product or, or both, ever? No, not once. In 20 years, the students in 65 countries. So it's a calculated risk just to do the TM instead of the R. So those are, that's, copyrights and trademarks and so you have um free trademark c with circle around it free so free copyright c with circle around it free trademark tm 
um, paid copyright, which is filing with the Library of Congress, paid trademark, which are the circle around, which you actually, actually, actually have to file. And registered trademarks are in categories. So you could have the same name with baby diapers and another one with tires. And if, as long as it doesn't create confusion in the mind of the consumer, you can have the same mark in different areas. Um, so that's another little thing. Copyright trademark, kind of boring, but people find them to be interesting. So um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, that was from Arthur. Thank you. Oh, no. And that was from Harry. Sorry, I don't want to give you credit, uh, Arthur. That was Harry's question. Um, Arthur says, if you sell a product to a company, can you provide marketing strategies to ensure your product sells? If so, how often should you suggest strategy without sacrificing the business relationship? Good question. I love this question, Arthur. So companies will vary tremendously with how involved they want you to be. Some, and so what's the spectrum? We got your idea, go away, um, we'll send you the royalties. Okay, that's extreme, right? We like the idea, we'll pay you the royalties, go away. And you know, even if a company is saying that, you should always come back with a, an improvement, keep, help them keep on top of their game, an improvement to the product, product variation that will always help them keep on top of their game, maybe even file a provisional on improvement. Show it to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, good. We can keep selling this without improvement. They'll keep keep it selling for another two, three, four, five years, what have you. Even if they're like, we got it. We don't really want your input. You should still come back with product variations, improvements, product line extensions, and other products. Okay? Um, most companies are not like that. Um, now, the other extreme is like, we want you super involved. We want your opinion on everything, the, the name, the color, the, the engineering of it, the design, the marketing, all that, that's the, oh, we want you to be involved in everything. And that's not that common because usually the company um, is, they know their distribution channels. They know what good marketing is. They know how to get some quotes and get the pricing down and all that. So everything in every little nook and cranny, most of them are somewhere in between, right? Um, so Arthur's specific question is, uh, strategies to ensure the product sells. So, you know, they're a little sensitive about the marketing. I mean, like a strategy that to say, oh, well, you guys should sell here, here, and here. And you know, they're like, we don't even sell those distribution channels. That might not come across as them as you might come across as a unrealistic inventor because they want to, they have uh, 200 products. Okay. And your product is one of 200 products and you're asking them to sell in completely different types of stores than they've ever sold in for your one product. Okay, that might go, yeah, this guy's kind of a, a little sand rock in my shoe here with this guy, right? You might feel like a rock in their shoe. But if it's making suggestions on the marketing copy or the colors or the way it's being marketed, or you might try this, you might try that, I think if you're very friendly and say, hey, these are just some friendly suggestions. I'm okay with what you guys want to do. Now, if sales aren't good, you got a little bit more leverage. Hey, guys. And, you know, they're not meeting the minimum guarantees. They're not performing. You come in there. And, again, you should still be friendly, but you got, you, you got a little leverage. You can pull the product because the way we teach our students to set up contracts and we guide them to set them up is if they don't perform, you can take it back. And then at some point, they're going to know that. And so getting in there, and you don't say that directly, but, you, hey, guys, you know, things seem to be, you know, struggling a little bit and making some suggestions. So most companies are somewhere in between. They're not like, we got it, go away, or, oh, my God, we want you involved in everything every day. You know, there's somewhere in between, and every company is different. So you need to kind of gauge it, you know, ask your contact, what are you okay with? What kind of feedback are you okay with? I have suggestions in these areas. Just ask them. And, and you know, you might want to just go to your contact and not go to their boss. And you, you ask that too. Like, should I send them to you? I don't want to get you in trouble. You've got to protect your Superman or Superwoman within that company and not make them look bad. And, you know, there's politics within a company. So maybe if you're sending all this stuff and you're copying the CEO and five other people in the company and they're, they're like, who is this guy? You know, it's, that's not how we do things here. Whereas opposed to you send it to your contact and they can kind of like change it a little bit, present it at the right time in the right meeting, in the right way, that they like to see it. 
that's better. And I would definitely talk to that person about that, what they're okay with. Um, so you just have to use common sense. And it will vary by every company. I can't give you a blanket answer. But it was a very detailed answer to your question, but I think it was pretty damn good. Um, well, uh, Ray Ray, <laughs> I like that. Uh, will manufacturers give a sample to an individual, for example, me, if they use the same materials for a big, huge brand? Oh, okay. So I think he's saying, I think what Ray Ray is saying is, if I contact a, a materials manufacturer and or a contract manufacturer trying to figure out materials, I'm just going to assume, because we don't know what your question is there fully, um, that will they provide these same materials that they provide to a big, huge brand? So let's do a stereotypical thing. And Ray Ray, feel free to type in more explanation um, of that. Um, so Velcro, okay, inventors love Velcro, right? And so if the Velcro is used in a particular, you know, the company, the Velcro company, there's um, generic hook and loop fastener, which is the generic term for Velcro. Um, if you approach Velcro, they'll sell it to anybody. Now, if you're noticing Velcro is only selling this particular type of Velcro to this one company, yeah, they might not, but more than likely it's such a prolific material, they'll just they'll happily sell it to you as well, so you just have to ask. Um, so if you find a materials manufacturer, you know, do they want to sell it to everybody under the sun? Yes. Um, most of the time they will, but there might be some instances where that materials manufacturer will not sell it to you. It might just be because you're too small, but if you're a big licensee, your big company you license to approaches them, they're big, they're not small. Now, will they talk to you if you're just sourcing materials and you, you're thinking you're just some rinky dink little guy? Yeah, they might not, you know? Um, Ray Ray didn't type any more details in there, so I'll just go with that. That's what the question was. Um, you guys got great questions. Uh, William says, all, ear, all ears, the wheels are turning. Thumbs up. Thank you, William. Um, uh, how, how long of a video is ideal from game on? Um, you, when you do a video instead of a cell sheet or in addition to cell sheet, you should never ever be over a minute. Occasionally we see students doing something under 90 seconds, preferably 30 seconds to a minute. Um, should, just shouldn't be, they don't have time for that. Um, and that gives you more time than with the cell sheet. When they look at a cell sheet, if you don't make an impression six to 10 seconds, you're toast. I would say more on the side of six seconds. With a video, as long as you're not losing their interest or it's some Hey, I'm Bob, and I came up with this idea in my closet for closets when I was talking to my wife. Okay, if you're talking like that, you and you get and you lose, they're gonna you're gonna lose in the first six seconds. As long as you're not doing that and it's somewhat intriguing, you'll probably get them for the full sixty seconds, hopefully. But don't talk about how you came up with the idea and the history of it. And, and if you're not camera ready then have somebody else do it and script it very well. But it should be under 60 seconds, in my opinion. Very occasionally, it could be under 90 seconds. But not, I see inventors doing five, six-minute videos. That's not a marketing piece. That's you rambling. Now, there is a, a time where it makes sense to send a longer video. Like, you really intrigue them, and you're going to show them more detail. It's like a personal um, pitch just to them. Uh, and you could send a five, six minute video, but it's not the marketing piece. And the only thing you want to send initially is the marketing piece. So that video should always be under 60 seconds. Occasionally you can do under 90 seconds. Um, uh, okay. Uh, Pensilmo, Pensilmo 7. <laughs> Isn't that like a Adam Sandler song or something? Oh, it's a, Elmo song. Adam Sandler does. I have a seven-year-old. She's a she's kind of outgrown Elmo, but um, he does a funny song with Elmo and everything that rhymes with Elmo. Anyway, you should look it up. What YouTube it? It's pretty funny. Um, I don't know if you have kids. Maybe it's funny. Maybe it's not funny. But um, how do I talk to a marketing or sales manager? Uh, I'm not insulting his name, by the way. That's that's a. I believe that's just the handle. So I would never insult somebody's name. How how do I talk to a marketing or sales manager on the phone if the receptionist or gatekeeper wants to hear the idea for themselves 
I will not let you talk to the managers. Well, if the receptionist wants to hear the idea from themselves, I think it's fine. Maybe they're intrigued. Now, you can also just give them something general. Well, I think it would be great for um, your guys' uh, gardening, um, XYZ gardening implements line. So sometimes they just want to hear, the gatekeeper wants to hear that, you know, they don't want to look bad. Why do you put this guy through to me? You know, and so if you say, well, I think, it, you know, you know, their product line a little bit. I think it would be great for your X, Y, Z line or it'd be great for your your um, your such and such line. You know, I think it fits in. It's a it's a gardening trail that would be great for. Oh, OK. Yeah, I'll put you through. So that might be what they're asking. But if you need to. Um, yeah, but the thing is, explaining your invention on the phone is like explaining how to tie your shoelaces over the phone. You just don't want to do it. You could say it makes it you could say a benefit statement, but then they're trying to picture it. That's why you always want them to see the sell sheet or the video. Now, if you need to send it to the receptionist and then say, oh, I'll send it to you and you can send it to them, then follow up with the receptionist because they don't want to pick up the phone. That's perfectly fine. If that's what they want to do, perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. Um, but you then you wrote, if they want to see it themselves or will not let you talk to the manager. So everybody's different. Sometimes you ask them and they'll readily give you their email, but they will not put you through their voicemail. Or they'll readily put you through their voicemail, but they will not give you their email. See what they're willing to work with. It's going to vary tremendously. And then you can also reach out to people on LinkedIn as well. That same person might answer you on LinkedIn, but they, you can't get to them on the phone because the gatekeeper is being a pain in the butt. Um, Spunky Monkey, have you heard anything about trade shows and if industries will be doing them virtually? I saw something. I didn't read it because I just skimmed it because I didn't even skim it. I just saw the headline because I was busy. And I saw something that I think Steve informed me actually about the hardware show. I think they were doing something virtually. Um, you know, one of the things that Steve and I have been talking about for 20 years is you don't need to go to trade shows. You know, you, you, you have LinkedIn. You can approach companies on the phone via LinkedIn. You don't need trade shows. They're, they can be nice. You can get a lot done in a day if you go to a trade show. But it was never necessary. The vast majority of our InventRight students don't go to trade shows. Um, and so I'm not worried about it. Now, um, some of them will be doing things virtually, and I, it'll be interesting to see how that works, you know, because when you're at a trade show, the person that has the booth at the trade show, they're there to sell, not to buy. So they're there. They got their kitchen gadgets, okay, and they have a booth. Let's say it's OXO, Good Grips. They have their kitchen company and make kitchen gadgets. They're there to have a buyer for Target walk by, a buyer from some other retailer walk by and say, this is our product line and make a connection and get an order or make the connection and later get an order, right? So that's not your goal at the trade show. Your goal is to make a connection with a marketing manager or somebody else and license your product to them. So it could be another product or product line. So with a real trade show, you need to be respectful of their time. The goal isn't necessarily even show your inventions, get the card from the marketing manager verify that they're okay with looking at the ideas and then follow up with them later. You giving them your card as a formality, I could care less. You give it to them because you're not being rude. You exchange cards, never expect them to call you back. You getting their card, never give a card and don't get their card. It's a complete and utter waste of time. You're at a trade show. They're getting maybe a thousand cards or really are they going to go through the card? Oh, I got to call this in matter. They don't have time for that. They're there. They spent tons of money on this booth. They're trying to sell, not to buy. Now, if you get a whole record, oh, yeah, we accept outside ideas. Okay, how do you like some? Well, just here, just drop me an email. And they give it to you. Okay, great. You know, and then occasionally it kind of makes sense. You're vibing with them. You're like, hey, I have it on my iPad. Yeah, if you don't have time, it's fine. But if you want to look at it real quick, you're like, oh, yeah, okay. And you show it to them, right? And so sometimes that makes sense. So if things are going virtual with trade shows, how does that work? You know, is it appropriate? I don't know. It depends on how they do these virtual trade shows. It's really, I always thought the idea of virtual trade shows was fantastic. They haven't really been implemented a lot, and so it has yet to be seen. Um, but I would follow the same rules that I just gave you if you're on a virtual trade show. Be very respectful, okay? Um, let's see. So Game On says, when an offer comes through, we got 10 minutes left, by the way. Um, how can I determine if the royalty rate is fair? Well, you're not looking at enough things. And I say this a lot. There's, there's, there's three things you want to look at, not just one. 
So people tend to focus on the royalty rate. So that's the, the percentage that they pay on every unit that they sell. But there's two other factors that are actually more important or equally important. There's the price of the product and how much volume they can do. So, you know, okay, so let's say you're getting an 8% royalty. So, and by the way, royalties are usually on the wholesale price because it's impossible to track retail price. The price that the manufacturer you license to sells to the retailer for, that can be tracked. You can't track retail price, it's impossible because there's discounts, clearance, sales, it would be impossible. So usually you track it on the wholesale price. And so is it a 99 cent product or is it a $599 product? Pretty big difference there, right? And then uh, are they going to sell 1,000 units a year or are they going to sell 2 million units a year? You know, for a 99 cent product, it might be 2 million units a year. For a $599 product, it might be 10,000 units a year. So you want to take those three numbers, the royalty rate, the price of the product, and the volume they're going to sell. So you need to interview companies about what they're going to sell. And inventors don't do this. I've talked to inventors that not our students, but I've talked to other inventors. They literally signed a licensing deal, and there was no minimum guarantees. They didn't interview the company, and they didn't hold them to a certain amount. They didn't even know where they freaking distributed, which is insane. It's absolutely insane to me that an inventor would do a deal. And I go, well, what were your minimum guarantees? What's that? Okay. Well, where do they sell? Well, I, I don't know. But I think I saw them in this one store. I'm like, well, where do they say they put your product? Because there's a big difference between they sell in these stores and what's their plan for your product. So a big part of what inventors don't do, it, not our students, but other inventors, is you don't interview the company. You have to interview, and I'm saying this to you, not to them, interrogate them about what they're going to do with it in a friendly way. And you have to hold them to it. And inventors don't do that. So uh, you're asking me how you can determine if the royalty rate is fair. So uh, game on how you figure out if it's fair is you, you, you take what the royalty rate they're offering you is and the price of the product and the volume they're going to sell and you add it up and you go, oh, well, I would make $20,000 a year or $200,000 a year or $80,000 a year. And you have to gauge your greed level, you know, and, you know, and you, you have to go, oh, I, you know, God, I was really hoping that um, I was going to make like 100K a year or more on this. But based on what they're telling me, you know, with the volume they're selling, and you calculate it, and it looks like it's going to be about 50K. But, you know, if they sell more, and I believe they're going to sell more, I could see it going to 100K. But they're thinking 50K because they're going to be always conservative with how much they're going to sell. Um, but you're holding them to 50K or whatever it is. So it will vary tremendously by the product. You know, some products might be $200,000 a year, $250,000 a year. Depends on the royalty rate, the price of the product, and what volume they're being selling, you know. So it's a great question. You guys have incredible questions tonight. Really, really good. Um, uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Uh, uh, Adam, if I have called both the marketing manager and sales manager to ask the company accepts outside ideas, if they both reply that they don't know that info, who do I suggest they put me onto instead? Okay. Well, you know, it's a good, one of the good things is to not assume if you're approaching a marketing or sales manager and you're asking if they're open to outside ideas and who would I approach and they say they don't know, um, you, what you're saying is you're, what you're doing there is you're not assuming it's them. So you're letting them pass the buck if they want to somebody else. But sometimes they'll say, well, I don't know. We'll say, can I submit to you then? Because they didn't say no, according to what Adam so you say, can I send it to you then? Can you take a look at it? And that's pretty simple. So I think that people are so worried about doing the wrong things, most people never take action with approaching companies. And yes, most inventors do God knows everything wrong. But if you have some common sense and you approach them, you know, if you're not acting wacky, they won't even remember you the next time. They won't be like, oh, that's that Adam guy. You know, as long as you're being polite and you're having common sense, and if you're approaching that same person six months from now, they probably won't even remember you. So don't think you can, as long as you're being polite and not acting wacky, you're probably not going to burn a bridge. So don't be so worried, guys, about, yes, if you're 
invent right student and you have a coach and coach, oh no, don't say this, say this. And we're guiding you and you're going to do a better job that way. But if you're doing it on your own and you don't have the budget and you don't have the ability to pay for our boot camp, six months of coaching, you know, it's okay to try this stuff. As long as you're not acting wacky, you probably won't burn a bridge. And so don't be afraid, just do it, you know? Um, well, let's see. Uh, Susie, let me let me go to somebody else because I answered another question from Susie. Um, okay, my, Matt Miller. Hi, Andrew. I submitted an idea to a toy company. Um, I have tried to reach out to get an update on my submission and got nothing back. Three months go by and an email saying, please resubmit your idea. <laughs> That's frustrating. Um, not all companies are great about managing submissions. Some are, some aren't. You know, I, I think that at some companies, they have one person dedicated to that, and they take it very seriously. At other companies, it's one month it's going into a black hole, and two months later, there's some intern that's great, and he's reviewing it. And then uh, three months later, you've got an actual marketing manager reviewing it. It's going to vary. You know, that's what they told you to do. They said, go ahead and resubmit, you know. Um, and so some companies, they're looking at it, and if, if they, they're paying close attention, they'll get back to you. And if not, they won't get back to you. And, you know, if they told you to resubmit, resubmit. Um, and you need to get used to that inefficiency. You're efficient, and you're, it's your most important thing, but it might not be their most important thing in that particular month. But then three months later, man, they're on top of submissions because their boss said, we need new products, guys. Hey, go, go through that stack over there. And it's literally a stack. And some are, like, looking at what's ever on the top of the stack. So they're like, hey, just send it again. And that's what he said to Matt. So send it again. You know, and, and toy companies, you need to be more prolific with a toy product than you do another product because they get so many freaking ideas. And they license so few. So you need to be more prolific and more persistent with toy products than with other categories. So that's what you need to do. Um, so, yeah, so Matt, hopefully that was helpful. Uh, so uh, Cheeto says, why do companies ask your age on their idea submission electronic forms? Um, yeah, so they're probably, you know, to want to know if you, if you're over 18, there might be issues with if you're under 18. So people that are under 18 don't need to comply with laws that they want people to comply with or with the rules. Like, so like if you're agreeing to whatever the submission agreement is on their site and you're under 18, technically you could come back and say, well, I don't have to comply with that. I'm not 18. So I think that they're just basically it's a standard thing and they want to make sure um, that, uh, you're complying and with their agreement because if you're under 18, you wouldn't be obligated to comply, even if you did sign it. That's that's why. I, I'm 99% sure that's why. Um, Arthur, thank you. Very flattering. You want me to go another 30 minutes, but I got a date with my wife. So you got me for another two. Um, <laughs> Rack said, soon Elmo will learn to spell Mo. Yeah, if you, if you look, there's a – I don't know. Adam Sandler is like funny, but also annoying. Um, all his characters seem to be the same, but I've watched a bunch of his movies that I actually like. But if you look at the Adam Sandler Elmo video and he's rhyming everything with Elmo, which is Spellmo, and that's where I got that. Um, I've encountered all sorts of things I never did before because I have a seven-year-old going on eight. Um, uh, Jack says, can you license to the federal government? Uh, no, you license the contractors that sell product to the federal government. That would make sense. You don't license the federal government. So look at whatever product you're selling, Jack, um, to that the federal government would buy, find the contracts to sell those types of products to the government, license to those companies. Okay. Um, uh, Michael Greer says, Andrew, is it okay to ask what a company is looking for? Yeah, I think it's okay, but I think it's better to submit one product. And then when they say no, because most companies will say no, which is fine. I mean, you approach 30 companies, 28 say no, two show interest, great. 
But when the when was 28 say no out of the 30, um, I'm just making up random numbers here, guys, saying, hey, I, I know you might not want to disclose this, but um, I'm a full-time product developer. And is there certain areas that you're looking for new products in? Uh, and, and would you be willing to share that? I'd be happy to come back with products in those areas um, and ask. And, you know, I think you have to set up what you think is rejection and re reframe what you think is rejection or not. So if you, it, let's say you approach 30 companies on this product. And what I'm saying is by submitting a product, that's how you're establishing a relationship. Hey, I'm in the game. Here's a product. Okay. So now instead of just sending this random thing, what are you guys looking for? You know, you created some sort of relationship and it's okay that they said no. So let's say the vast majority of companies for this particular product said no. And maybe you licensed it to the two that showed interest. Maybe you didn't, but you send it to these companies and then you ask. And so let's say only one in five companies gets back to you with, oh, yeah, well, actually looking for um, muffin tins in this area. They're not going to say specifically like invent this, but they might say we're looking for muffin tins right now, you know, or we're looking for, you know, this is kind of hot. Got anything kind of over in that space or we're noticing this trend. A lot of times they don't want to tell you that because they're starting to see trends and they don't want to give it up to a competitor. You know, um, you're, no, you're not a competitor, but maybe you might give it up. They want to keep that secret, but you have to reframe what you think is not a response. And you can say, you can say, Oh, I'm perfectly okay. If you don't want to share that, but if you do, you know, let me know and I'll try to come up, show you stuff in that space. So well, let's say other 28 companies that said, no, one in five gives you some feedback on what they're looking for. That's a huge success. We have 28 companies that said no to this particular idea. If three said, oh, yeah, we're looking for this, that's a success. If they don't respond, fine, don't push it, fine. You know, so, but I think that people want whatever they're doing to work 100% of their time. And that's not how licensing works. It's not how it works. And if you've ever done sales, you accept this. And I don't see licensing as really sales, but you accept these things. And if you've never done licensing, sales before um it's hard for you to accept that um and if you have done sales before but now this is your personal baby your product and you might you're just schlocking some product because you're working for this company you don't care oh okay they're not interested now you're taking it personal because it's your product um so be become numb to that somewhat and don't take it personal um and be and most inventors will never ask for that sort of feedback and it's the same with asking for feedback about actual products as well. You know, hey, hey I, no problem. I understand you're not interested in this product. If you have a moment or two to write back or if you even get on the phone, but, hey, I know you're busy. Um, any feedback you could um, give me on my marketing presentation itself, if it was confusing in some way, or the product itself would be much appreciated. I don't expect it. but And so let's, let's say one in ten companies gives you some really good feedback. Well, you didn't, you didn't get insulted that nine didn't. And you don't think that they didn't, in fact, they didn't reply means they don't want more ideas. you got to reframe these things. That is so important. That's more important than your ability to come up with cool ideas because you're, you're becoming a professional and you're, you're building up a thick skin is what you're doing there. Uh, I don't know. Arthur said he wanted me to address something, but I can't find it. Uh, yeah, anyway, we better call it an item. Four minutes passed. Um, so I want to remind everybody to take care and keep inventing. And for 95% of you, inventing is part of who you are. So do the work to make that happen. Realize that most of inventing is not the ideation and the creation of the product, but the work to get it out there in the marketplace. And the work to do that when you're licensing is just to sell it to that one company, but it's still work. And it's not starting a whole business and raising money and doing all that stuff, but you still have to do work. It's not no work. It's a fair amount of work. Nothing compared to running a company, but still a fair amount of work. So, you know, find that passion with, you have that within you, and don't get discouraged when you realize licensing is some work because it's a bit of a shock. Going from dreaming up ideas to actually doing this work is a shock to your system. 
and let your system be shocked and get used to it and get a little numb to any rejection you're getting and just keep plodding along, keep trying stuff. And yeah, we can get you on the fast track to things with, that's cheesy, I don't like to use that term, but we can get you moving faster with the coaching. But if you're going to do it on your own, it's going to go way slower, but you can still do it. And hopefully these Q&A sessions and all the videos we do in our books and all the stuff that's more affordable than our coaching will help you guys. So I want to encourage everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.